Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, welcome to this week's Shear on Rashi, and we start from Perak Breshit Perak Yudchet, Pasuk Kaf. And the story so far is we've dealt with the angels coming to visit Avraham and to be told that, uh, and the angels give a message that. Avraham and Sarah are going to have a baby called Yitzchak, but we moved on from that and we are beginning to talk about Sodom and the destruction of Sodom and its neighboring cities. And in Pasuk Yud Chet, uh, sorry, Pasuk Yud Zayin, Hashem said, Should I hide from Abraham what I am going to do? In other words, the, distraction, the, the issue of the destruction of Sodom. And then Pasuk Yudchet and Pasuk Yudtet can basically be summed up as Hashem saying, Abraham's a really good guy, and he's got a vested interest in what happens to Eretz Yisrael, or what happens to humanity. Um, and therefore, the conclusion is that Hashem is indeed going to speak to Abraham about the destruction of Saddam, as we know. So the actual reference to Saddam starts in Pasuk Kaf. Vayomer Hashem tsa'akat Saddam va'amora. Hashem said, the cry of Saddam and Amorah, ki rabbah, because it is great, or something to do with that, Rashi will explain, v'chatotam, and their sins, ki kavda ma'od, because it is very heavy. So something's going wrong in Saddam and Amorah. There's a sin, um, and there's a cry. Uh, and then Hashem goes on to say, I'm going to do something about it. Now, by the way, we have been introduced to Saddam before. Um, when Abraham and Lot separated, Lot went to Saddam, and we were told that they were chata'im, ra'im v'chata'im. They were wicked and they were sinful against Hashem. So it's no surprise that Saddam and Amorah are not good places. But now, sa'akat, Saddam v'amorah ki rabah. The cry of Saddam and Amorah, it is great. So let's see what Rashi says. So the first thing Rashi says is on the words, Vayoma Hashem. Vayoma Hashem, El Avraham, to Avraham. Sha'asa ka'asher amar, that he did as he had said. I Hashem did what Hashem said. Shalo yakase mimenu, that he did not hide from him. In other words, Pasuk Kaf is the answer to Pasuk Yud Zayin. In Yudzayin, Hashem Amar, Hamakasa Ani Me Avraham, should I hide from Avraham, Asher Ani Aser, what I'm going to do? And then in Yudchet and Yudtet, he gave Hashem gave himself reasons why he should not hide from Avraham. And in Kaf, Vayoma Hashem says Rashi, this is the conclusion of that little bit of Hashem's, as it were, internal dialogue, and this is the conclusion of the question asked in Hamakaser. Now, why does Rashi say that? And the answer is because Hashem is speaking again. Um, Hashem started speaking in Yud Zayin, Hashem Omar. He carried on speaking in Yud Tet, he carries on speaking in Yud Tet, and he carries on speaking in Kaf. Now, we know that in classical Hebrew, there are no inverted commas. Um, we don't know the difference between direct speech and um, indirect speech, just narrative. How do we know that somebody is speaking? Because the Pasuk says, so-and-so. Somebody said, 
and then follows the words that he said. And his words carry on until either clearly there's a narrative or somebody else starts speaking. What is rare and is significant is if the same person speaks twice, Vayoma Hashem followed by Vayoma Hashem. If the same person is speaking twice, it's something that is significant. So Rashi explains that it's Hashem speaking again, but now he's speaking to somebody else. In Yud Zayin, and by continuation in Yud Chet and Yud Tet, Hashem was speaking to himself. So Vayoma Hashem, Hashem now speaking again in Kaf, he must no longer be speaking to himself, he is speaking to someone. Who is that someone? Obviously, Abraham. So Rashi says, Vayom Hashem el Avraham, and therefore we see that Hashem was now doing what Hashem said he would do. Now he asked it in the sense of an interrogative in Yud Zion, should I hide from Avraham? I think this Rashi here on Kaf makes it clear that was, as it were, a rhetorical question. I don't know if you can have a rhetorical question that you say that you ask yourself, but if you can, this is one. It's a rhetorical question. Should I hide from Abraham? Obviously, no, because Rashi here says, Hashem said that he would not hide from him. Now, in Yud Zayin, it didn't actually say that. In Yud Zayin, it says, Should I hide? Yes or no? But Rashi now rephrases that as saying that he would not hide. In other words, Hashem was asking rhetorically, should I hide? Obviously, I should not. Should I hide? Given that in Yudchet and Yudchet, we see that Abraham is so worthy of being brought into the conversation. Obviously, I should not hide. And that's how Rashi reads it here in Kaf. And he says, Hashem al-Avraham, Now we see that Hashem did, as Hashem said, but he did not hide from him, and now he's talking to him. Okay, and what does he say to him? He says that Now we have a bit of grammar, and this is a piece of grammar that Rashi brings from time to time. He makes this same point, I can think of at least three occasions, but there may be more because I haven't checked. And he's talking about the ambiguity of a Hebrew two-letter root in the past feminine singular third person, or the present singular third person, because they have the same grammatical form. So rabah is a word, uh, the root is reshbet, the hey is because it's feminine. And well, let's Rashi speak for himself after that introduction. Rashi says, ki rabah, kol rabah shabamikra hatam lamata babet. Wherever you find the word Rabbah in scripture, the accent is on the lower second syllable, the lower syllable, as it were, the last syllable, on the bet. It's usually read as Rabbah, if I can uh, accentuate the accent. I suppose that's what you do with accents, you accentuate them. He Rabbah. That is how you find it normally. Now, by the way, Rashi's speaking in sort of um, uh, medieval Hebrew when he says, Kol Rabbah Shabamikra, every instance of Rabbah Shabamikra. He's about to say there's an exception. So what he means is Rabbah usually, doesn't mean every time, because this is an exception. So usually Rabbah is in the, um, has the accent on the second syllable. Lefi shahein meturgamin gedola or gedela v'holechet. 
because it is, now he uses the word metorgamim, which we usually say means translated, in particular translated in Aramaic. That's not what it means here, because the words you give um, are not Aramaic. So it means it means. Um, Rabah, with the accent on the second syllable, means gadola. It is great, present tense. Or gadela v'holechet. Or it has become great, past tense, but v'holechet means it's a continual action. Technically what we call the imperfect. So Rabah, with an accent on the second syllable, is either present, it's happening now, or it has happened, started in the past and it carries on happening now. Either way, it's, it's happening now. Avazer, but this one, ta'amolamala beresh. The accent is on the first syllable on the resh. Now, uh, we can see the accent because the accent is provided for us by the trot, by the notes which is used for laning. There's an esnachto on the resh. So it's pronounced ra with the accent on the first syllable. Why? Because it means it's already become great. It's in the past tense, technically the perfect. It's a completed action. As I explained um, in Perak Tet Vav, at the Brit Benavatarim, the sun had already come, and there it was Ba'ah. Now, Bet Aleph also is a two-letter root. Bet Aleph He is the feminine third person, so there's the ambiguity there. Hinei Shava Yivmateich is a line from Megillat Rut, where Naomi says to Rut, your Yivma, not technically your Yibum, but your, your, coast, your, co, uh, your, your, your husband, sister-in-law, um, Orpa, she has returned. So Nami says to Rut, you should do the same. Shin Vet is also a two-letter root. Shin Vet Hey in the feminine singular third person is ambiguous. Rashi makes the same point there. It's Shava, accent on the, sorry, Shava, accent on the first syllable because it's already happened. Okay, and there are other examples as well. Uh, and that is it, um, I'm afraid. There's no, I don't think there's, I don't think we have to find deeper meaning in this Rashi. He's explaining the ambiguity of a particular grammatical construction and how you resolve the ambiguity by seeing where the accent is. And the accent in our case is on the first syllable, ra-ba, which means the sin has already become, sorry, the cry has already become great. It doesn't mean the cry is great now, the cry has become great. Okay, let's go on to the next person. Pasuk kaf Aleph says Hashem, Eradna, sorry, Eradana, I will go down, please, the Ere, and I will see. Hakatsa Akata, I'm knowing what Rashi's going to say, if like her cry, Haba'a Eli, that comes to me, or has come to me, in fact, Asu, they have done, Kala, I'm preempting how Rashi's going to explain this then they will be destroyed. And if not, I will know. Okay, there's a lot to say on that verse, starting with Aradna, sorry, Arada, I'm getting it wrong every time. Arada, no, I will go down. The Ere, and I will see. Says Rashi, he made Ladayanim, Shalo Yifsaku Dine Nafashot Eilabriya. This teaches Dayanim, judges, 
but they should not decide capital cases except by seeing. Now, seeing doesn't necessarily mean visually seeing, but it means having a full understanding of the matter. And then he says, Hakol Kamosha Parashti, Baparasha Hapalaga. Everything is as I have explained in the parasha of the uh, Migdal Bavel, which led to the, dis the dispersion, the generation of Hapalaga, um, sometimes called Haflaga, but the correct grammar is Hapalaga. Says Rashi, I explained it there and I'm explaining it again, because there, before Hashem punished the builders of the Tower of Bavel, Hashem said, I will go down, exactly as he says here. And Rashi says, also there, it was to teach Dayanim in the future, but they should go and look at the situation and get a full understanding before they pronounce judgment. What's the problem? The problem is Hashem does not need to check it out for himself because Hashem is omniscient. He knows everything. So why possibly does he need to go down and see? So the answer is, this is a message, an example that Hashem is setting for judges in future generations, but they should also go down and see. If Hashem, who doesn't need to go down and see, uh, and by the way, Hashem being everywhere, cannot, doesn't need to go down as if he needs to go from A to B because he's already at B as well as A. Um, so if Hashem makes a point of saying, I will go down and I will see, then Kalvachoma, how much more so human judges should do the same. Now, there's an interesting question. If Rashi says, Hakol Kamoshe Parashti, Baparashat Hapalaga, it's all like I explained earlier in Bereshit Perikyodalu, then why does the Torah need to say the same message twice? If the Torah is already taught Dayanim by the example of Hashem at the Dor Hapalaga, why does Hashem need to give the same example again? So I saw an interesting answer to that, that at the time of Migdal Bavel, Hashem needed to see, as it were, I mean, of course Hashem knew, but Hashem was demonstrating to judges, but they needed to see what is the nature of the sin? Because it's very unclear what the Migdal Bavel builders were doing wrong. Is it a sin to build a tower? Is it an attack on Hashem if they build a tower? So you could say that there's two examples of Hashem going down to see, two messages that Dayanim, that judges in the future should draw from this. Number one, the message of Migdal Bavel. You need to see the nature of the sin. If that the, the action that the people whom you're judging are doing, is it actually a sin or is it not? In the case of Saddam, and it's quite clear um, from this passage here and from what Rashi is going on to say, is there's no doubt what the sin is. The sin is that the people of Saddam are a rotten, selfish, and inhospitable lot. The question is, are they still doing that? In other words, I don't need to judge the nature of the sin. I need to judge whether the people are still committing the sin. So we can say there's two different types of limud, two different types of learning that Hashem is demonstrating and Hashem is thereby teaching. And that is why the Torah needs to teach it twice. Okay, then Rashi says, Devar acher, another explanation, Erda na lasof ma'asehem. I will go down literally to the end of their deeds, which means I will really examine, I will go down in the sense of I will go down into the future and to see what will happen to these people, given how evil that they are. I will go down to see the, extra, the uh, extrapolation of their evil actions. 
Now, why do we need the second explanation? Well, it answers the problem of the first explanation, which was well, the first question was, why does Hashem need to go down? He knows everything already. So the first answer was to teach the Dayanim. The second answer is he's not going down to find out information that he doesn't already know. And this is, in a sense, the advantage of the second explanation, because of course Hashem knows everything. But what it means here is I'm investigating and I'm extrapolating to the end of their deeds. In other words, I'm drawing a line from where they are now to where they'll be in the future, and I'm deciding on the basis of that how to punish them. So the second explanation has avoided the question of God's omniscience, of God's knowing everything. However, um, and I only noticed this today, uh, there's a glaring hole in the second explanation, which is why we need the first explanation. And it's interesting, Rashi's really highlighted it by his silence when he quotes the second explanation. I will go down to the end of their deeds. What Rashi has omitted is the, words, is the word and I will see. Now it's interesting, in the first explanation, Rashi actually highlighted that word. He said, um, although he didn't quote it in the Dibra Matchel, he didn't quote it in the words that he's quoting, but nevertheless, his words were, Judges can't decide capital cases without seeing, and that clearly is a reference to the second word of the Passover, sorry, the third word, depending on how you count, no. Arada na and I will see. And Rashi in the first explanation says, However, in the second explanation, there's no reference to Ere'er at all. And it really doesn't belong in the Pasuk. Erada na is sufficient to be explained as Erada na asehem. I will go down to the end of their deed. So that actually is my suggestion for what it's worth of why we need these two explanations. And I couldn't find any other, maybe I didn't look hard enough. So I offer that one, but I'm actually quite, uh, quite convinced by it. But the second explanation does not relate to the word re'ia, and therefore that's what's uh, so, uh, deficient in the second explanation, which is why we need the first explanation. Okay, haka'atzakata, which is a hard word to say, uh, says Rashi, so, is it like the cry? The hey at the beginning is uh, an interrogative, even though it's not a chatapatach, I've just noticed, but it's read as um, a, a question mark. So ketsa'akata is like its cry, but to be precise, like her cry. Now, why, who is she? Now, obviously in Hebrew, it doesn't have to be a, a, per, a feminine person because everything, every noun is masculine or feminine. What is the feminine noun? which is <coughs> having a cry. <coughs> so her cry, the cry of what? Now, if it's Saddam, that's a city and that's masculine. So Rashi says, Shel Medina. It's the cry of the country. Or, or country, perhaps, is a too uh, modern word, post-Treaty uh, of Westphalia. Um, a, the region. Medina is a region. Now, it's going to become relevant probably maybe tonight, uh, if not next week. Uh, I've already mentioned last week, there were five cities, Saddam, Amara, and three others. They're listed elsewhere. So um, it can't be the cry of Saddam, because that will be masculine. It can't be the cry of all five cities, because that will be masculine plural. It's feminine singular, katsakata, and therefore Rashi has to explain what is the feminine singular thing that has a cry. Answer, Shel Medina, of the region, which is nicely singular and 
feminine. By the way, later on, Rashi's going to give an alternative explanation, but at the moment, that's the one he's sticking with. Now, then Rashi's going to help us with the words, the next words of the Pasuk. Haba'a, Eli, Asu, Kala. So it's really hard to translate those words. They've done, so the, the, the cry that comes to me, they have done Kala. So Kala can mean finishing off by Yechulo HaShemayim Ba'aretz. Kala can also, if it's read as Kula, be referred to all of them. If you look in Shemot Yud Aleph, Pasuk Aleph, um, Hashem says that when the Bnei Yisrael are sent out from Egypt, they will Kula, they will all be sent out. So the word Kala can mean all of them. Um, or as I say, it can mean finishing and destroying. Uh, but in so, even so, then Haba Eli Asu Kala, they have done <coughs> destruction. What does that mean? So Rashi says, it doesn't mean that, as Rashi will now explain. <clears throat> so on the words, Haba'a Eli Asu, that the cry that they have, has come to me, they have done. V'chein omdim b'mirdam, and they are thus, or similarly, they are remaining in their rebellion. So that's the question, which if Hashem is giving a lesson to Dayanim that you have to really check the facts, then the fact that he is checking, I, Hashem, obviously knows, but he's demonstrating that you have to check. And he checks the fact whether they are still doing like the cry that has come to me. <clears throat> so a cry has come to me. They have done bad things. The question is, are they still doing bad things? <clears throat> and thus they are standing in, they are staying in their rebellion, in which case, kala ani vahem. A destruction or a finishing off, I will do with them. And if they do not, if they are not standing in their rebellion, in other words, if they've done teshuva, I suppose, I will know what I will do. What does it mean, I will know what I will do? Because the last passage, just the last word says, I will know. It says Rashi. You might think, I know the situation. Or the word da means lots of things in, uh, in the Chumash, lots of quite different things. And the simple idea of knowing what to do is, is rarely one of them. But Rashi says it is one of them. It is that it means in this case. I will know mehen. what I will do to, to, to uh, punish them with afflictions. And I will not finish them off. So I've, I've, let me go back and say the whole thing again without me interrupting it. So from the beginning, if they're still remaining in their rebellion, destruction I will do with them. And if they're not still in their rebellion, I will know what I will do to punish them with affliction and I will not finish him, but finish him, sorry, finish them off. Okay, uh, by the way, if they're not still in their rebellion, that means they've stopped sinning, that means they've done teshuva, so why does Hashem have to punish them at all? Ah, so it's now into Elul. Some of us might be learning Hilchat uh, Teshuvah, and right at the beginning, uh, in the fourth halacha of the first parak, the Rambam says in Hilchat Teshuvah, but there are some sins where after teshuva, one doesn't get kapara until one has suffered a certain degree of affliction. 
And the sins of Saddam are obviously such sins that even when they've stopped sinning, which lets us give them the benefit of the doubt and say that they've done teshuva, if that had been the case, which it wasn't, then they still need to have yesurin afflictions before they can have kapara. Okay, so the next thing Rashi is going to do to back up what he says is to uh, tell you that the word eida'ah, I know, can be used in the sense of, I will know what to do to punish. So he says, So similar to this interpretation of eida'ah, we find in another place. And the Apostle tells us after the sin of the golden calf, now remove the ornaments from upon you. And I will know what I will do with you. So uh, the disgrace of the Bnei Israel is they removed their ornaments, whatever they were, crowns given to them when they said, maybe. and then Hashem says, I will know, and he fills out what Rashi adds for us in this case, but there in Shemot Lama Gimel is explicit, I will know what I will do to you. So Rashi brings that to show that Eda'ah, I will know, can mean I know what punishment to bring. Okay, now Rashi's got to explain something else because he's read these words um, with a particular construction. Let's go back to look at the words in the Pasuk. Kala. And Rashi explained as, I will finish them. So the subject of kala is I. The subject of asu is they. So asu kala does not mean they have done destruction. It means they have done what they were doing up till now, semicolon. And if that's the case, kala, I will punish them. I will finish them off. So Rashi's been quite bold in separating Asu and Kala to say it does not mean they have done destruction, but rather it means they have done something, semicolon, and I will do something else. But maybe Rashi hasn't been so bold because he finds grammatical uh, support for, for his position. And he says here, Therefore, there is a break of a, um, uh, well, what he's referring to, Nukudah Pesik, is the straight line. Um, uh, in most Chumashim, and I, you might all be using a different Chumash, I'm, I'm nervous about saying all, but part of the trop, part of the uh, notes, is the vertical line between Asu and Kala. Now, the note on the Asu is a um, Munach, and the note on the Kala is an Esnachta, and normally the, they, they link together, they form a pair and they're read as if they form a pair. However, when there is a psik, which means a separation, a vertical line after the munach anasu, then it is separated from the esnachta on kala, and it's read as if it's a separate note. So Rashi says, look, there is this nukura psik ben asu lachala. There is this division between asu and kala, kedei lahafrid teva mechaverta in order to separate the word from its next word. And that's why I, Rashi, can explain it. In fact, this is now the right way to explain it. This is absolutely backed up by the punctuation. Ahaba Eli Asu, 
is followed by a semicolon, and then kala is a new clause, because as Rashi explains, it's got a wholly new subject. It means, I will finish them off. By the way, kala is grammatically not the same as achale, which is the way Rashi reads it. Rashi knows that he's sort of taking one word and reading it as another, but that, I think, is the um, I say this in the nicest possible way, the best he can do, given that Kala is basically all by itself. Um, since we've got this sit, this separation after the word Asu, Kala is a word simply by itself. What does it mean? What grammatical form is it implying? So Rashi says it means Akale Otan, I will finish them off. Okay, and then he brings another interpretation of Hakata Akata. For Raboteinu Darshu, Hakata Akata, it refers to the cry of one, riba is a fairly obscure word for young woman. Shahargu, that they killed, the people of Sodom killed her with a mita mushuna, a strange and uh, inhumane type of death. Al shenatna mazon ani, that she gave food to a poor person. Kumafurash as is explained in Perak Chelek, which is the 10th Perak of Sanhedrin. The story uh, brought in the Gemara is that a woman um, gave some food to a poor person, and that is the ultimate no-no in Sudan. As we talked about before, and as the Midrashim are replete, the sin of Sudan was inhospitality. They had this wonderful bounty, this oasis in the desert, and they didn't want to share it with anybody. And we see a little bit of that in the text, in the next parak, when Lot hosts two of the angels, and the people of Sodom are very cross with him and demand that he uh, throw the angels out of his house. And so we get a sort of sense from that, that hospitality they had a problem with. The Midrashim go into much, much more detail, much, much more exemplification, that hospitality was against the law, literally against the law of Saddam. They didn't just practice inhospitality, they legalized and legitimized it. And so when a young woman uh, went against this law and gave food to a poor person, they killed her. And the Mita Mushuna, I'm sorry for the graphic image, is they smeared her with honey and left her out for the bees and the scorpions. And uh, that's a pretty awful way to die. There is actually a version of that Midrash that says she was a daughter of Lot, but others don't say that. Now, let's go back to Rashi and let's go back to the text. So first of all, um, it's possible that when Chazal referred to a young woman and they used the word riba, that's how they read midrashically the word rabah in Pasukkah. The cry of Sodom and Amorah that has come from this riba, from this young woman, rabah, riba. Uh, the next issue is in Kaf Aleph, um, I spoke, I probably went on quite a long time, about how hakata akata must refer to something which is singular and feminine. Uh, and Rashi provided the singular feminine Medina, the region is, that's crying out. But Chazal said it's the cry of a particular person. Now, this is clearly Midrashic. Um, Rabbah does not mean riba in the simple Pashat. And to go into a Midrash, um, is usually Rashi's second choice after having explained the words according to the Pshat. Um, but you could say that Rashi saying it's the Medina is a bit of a stretch because we don't refer to this region as a region anywhere else in this whole discussion. In this whole dialogue that's coming up between Hashem and 
uh, Avraham, it's referred to as Sodom. Uh, Rashi says they're talking about the cities. It's never referred to as the Medina, the region. So Rashi's first explanation to say that the reference of the cry, Hatzakata, is to the Medina, he sort of invented that in order to answer the question. So the alternative answer is the Midrashic answer that it refers to this uh, terrible death inflicted on this woman. Um, but that's also clearly uh, a little bit unsatisfactory to sort of invent this whole backstory that the Midrash does that refers to this of this, uh, of this poor uh, person. Uh, by the way, one more point is that if we're going by Rashi's, by the explanation here brought in the name of Rabotenu, of Chazal, then we've sort of narrowed down the earlier uh, two options of um, Aredna. Aradna. Every time I say that, I say it wrong. Aradna. Um, I will go down. Rashi said at the beginning, either I will go down to see if they are still in rebellion or not. And then Rashi says, Arada, I will go down the Sofma Aseham to the end of their deeds. Uh, in other words, there's no doubt about what's going on. I, Hashem, want to extrapolate to see what would happen in the future. According to the second explanation that Rashi brings, in the name of Rabotenu, there's no doubt in Hashem's mind. There's no question of whether they're still sinning because Hakatsakata refers to one individual sin that took place, one individual horrendous event. So if it's all because of one event that's happened, then there's nothing for Hashem to, as it were, find out about. In, in, if Hashem will give you an example of the Diana, but they have to find out. So therefore, um, it seems that this second explanation lies up, lines up with Rashi's second explanation of Eradana. Um, I will go down because there's now nothing left to find out. Okay, that finishes a lot to say on Pasuk Kaf Aleph. We have less to say on Pasuk Kaf Bet, but we have a question or a comment from Benji. Thanks, Rob. I'm not sure if you um, explained it then, um, and I didn't quite get it, but I'm just wondering why that um, other interpretation of Hakatsa Kata is included under the Dibura Matriel Haba Elai Asu and not as part of the Hakatsa Kata Dibura Matriel? No, I didn't explain it. That's an interesting question. You mean the one we did with the, the, the Midrash and the and Rabotero? In other words, it could have been put before the whole discussion on Asu and Kala. It's just a Dvarachera maybe, or just another interpretation of Yehakata Kata. Okay, so basically you're asking a question on the order, the internal order within Rashi's comments, and I, I, I would say that's a very good question, and I right now don't know the answer. Thank you. Okay, so I'll pass on that, but I'll thank you for the question. Let's move on to Pasuk Kafbet. The men turned from there. So who are the men? So the men are the people we haven't heard much about from the last four Pesukim, but they are the visitors in Abraham's house whom we know are angels. Um, it suggests that Abraham doesn't know they're angels. We had a little discussion about that last week. Anyway, they're referred to as Anashim. And they turned from there, and they walked, they went to Sodom. Uh, which is their next port of call, which, as we keep saying, is the continuation and the, uh, as, I, as I said many times, um, there's a very clear line from the story of the angels announcing the birth of Yitzchak to the story of Saddam. And I mentioned last week that if you look carefully at Pasuk Yud Tet, 
um, Abraham is praised that he's going to teach his children about righteousness. And that beautifully frames the contrast because the first half of it is about the birth of a child. And the second half is about the non-righteousness of the people of Saddam. And the bridge, if you like, is Abraham, when he has a child, is going to train him in righteousness, not like the people of Saddam. And uh, another, if you like, textual uh, literary device to create this connection or progression from one to the other is the very same men who came to visit Abraham, whom we've talked about for the first half of the parak. They are now going to Saddam. So they're linking the first story with the second story. Um, and Abraham was still standing before Hashem. Okay, Rashi says, they turn from there, from the place that Abraham accompanied them to. Because, why do we need to say this? Because if we look in Pasuk Tet Zayin, Pasuk Tet Zayin said, the men got up from there, and they looked towards the face of Saddam. And Abraham went with them to send them. And Rashi says it doesn't mean to send them, but rather to accompany them. Because he thought they were guests. So we know from Pasuk Tet Zayin that they've already started their journey. They've already left Abraham's tent and he has walked some of the way with them. Therefore, in Pasuk Kafbet, we have a problem. It's not the biggest problem in the world. It's not going to be earth shattering. But the problem is the Yifnu Misham sounds like they left Abraham's tent. Sounds like this was the beginning of their journey. But their journey was already underway in Pasuk Tetzayim. So Rashi answers that by saying, what does it mean they turned from there? From the place that Abraham had accompanied them there. In other words, this is the direct continuation of Pasuk Tetzayim. In Tetzayim, they started their journey. And in Kafbet, they carried on the journey from that point. So if you're confused and you think Kafbet is saying they went back to, uh, they started again from Abraham's tent, it doesn't mean that. That's why Rashi says, Mimakom, Abraham, Livam, Sham. Then the Pasuk says, the Abraham Odena Omed Lifnei Hashem. Abraham was still standing before Hashem. Says Rashi, Abraham Odeno Omed Lifnei Hashem. Vahalo lo halach la'abod lafanav. Behold, he did not go to stand before him. Abraham did not go to stand before Hashem. Ela hakodesh baruchu bo etzlo v'amar lo. But Hashem came to him and said to him, in other words, the contents of Pasuk Kaf, the cry of Saddam and Amorah, that it has become great. And it should have written, Hashem was still standing by Avraham. Now what's going on here? The point is this. If A goes to see B, then it is logical to say, a was still with B after a while. A went to see B, A hasn't left, so A is still with B. But if A goes to see B, it doesn't make sense to say B is still in front of A. Because if B is standing still, 
then B is not going anywhere. So it doesn't make sense to say, well, B hasn't gone anywhere. B is still with A, because B was never moving. If it's A goes to B, then you say A is still with B. You don't say B is still with A. It just doesn't make sense. And yet here we have exactly that. Hashem has gone to Abraham. In Pasuk Kaf, now what does it mean Hashem has gone to Abraham? It doesn't mean obviously Hashem has moved, but Hashem as it were has engaged in conversation. Abraham hasn't gone to Hashem. Abraham has um, accompanied the uh, uh, guests part of the journey. Presumably he's come back to his tent, but he hasn't gone to Hashem. Whereas Hashem is the one who's initiated the interaction with Abraham. And in that sense, as it were, Hashem has gone to Abraham. And that's what happened in Pasuk Kaf. Vayoma Hashem, which Rashi made, went out of his way to point out was to Abraham. So, and Rashi explained, this is the beginning of Hashem engaging Abraham in conversation about Saddam. And therefore, Abraham was still standing before Hashem is problematic. To which Rashi says, This is a fixing by the scribes. So why does it mean this is a fixing by the scribes? Because it's not polite to say that Hashem was still with Abraham, as if Hashem is the uh, um, beseecher of Abraham. Of course, it must always be the other way around. So in order to speak respectfully about Hashem, the Pasuk inverts the natural um, uh, idiomatic expectation and says Hashem was, before, uh, sorry, Abraham was before Hashem, but it means Hashem was before Abraham. By the way, a word on Tikkun Sofrim, the fixing by the scribes. There is uh, an absurd idea, sorry to be judgmental at the very beginning of this little piece of conversation, there is an absurd and nonsensical idea that when Rashi says Tikkun Sofrim, it means people have altered the text. That the text originally said something, and the scribes, as they write it out, have changed the words. And therefore, the Torah we have today is not the Torah that was given to Han Sinai, because there's been a few instances of Tikkun Sofrim. Clearly, Rashi doesn't mean that. Clearly, because Rashi is not an Epicurus, uh, and Rashi is not a heretic who believes that the Torah we have today is not Torah Minashamayim. But more to the point, because that, that's just a nonsensical reading. What he's saying here, it doesn't mean that the text um, originally said Abraham, sorry, Hashem was before Abraham and the scribes fixed it. What he means is the Torah, Dibra Torah Balashim Adam, as the Gemara says, the Torah speaks in the language of man, and Rashi uses that idea occasionally. The Torah writes things in a way that we can understand. And the Torah sometimes changes the actual fact even in order to make the words more palatable and more understandable. And in this case, to make the words more respectful to Hashem. And there's a few instances where the, uh, Rashi says the Torah doesn't say exactly what Hashem would have done because it's just not appropriate to say that about Hashem. So here is a Tikkun Sofrim, even though really what was happening was Hashem came to speak to Abraham. Hashem was still in front of Abraham and carried on speaking, or rather Abraham now starts speaking. Um, but in order for the text to speak respectfully about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it said that Abraham was still standing before Hashem. That is Rashi on Pasuk Kaf Bet. And now we come to Pasuk Kaf Gimel. And this is the Pasuk that starts the very, very well-known episode of Abraham bargaining with Hashem to save Saddam and the neighboring cities. 
And the passage begins, Vayigash Abraham. Abraham drew near, Vayomer, and he said, Vayomer, Ha'af tisper sadik im rasha. So we'll leave Rashi to explain Ha'af tisper. Let's talk about Vayagesh Abraham. Sorry, Vayigash Abraham. Vayigash Abraham says, Rashi, Matsino hagasha milchama. We find drawing near, let's call it hagasha, for war. And he brings a passage from Shmuel Bet, but Yigash Yoav, the Gomer, Yoav drew near. The Hagasha Lapius, and we have Hagasha also for, now Pius is an interesting word, and we'll come back to explain the idea here, but let's call it negotiation or appeasement. The Yigash Elav Yehuda, and Rashi quotes the Yigash Elav Yehuda, Yehuda drew near, that's to Yosef at the beginning of Pasha of Yigash. The Hagasha Latfila, and we also find Hagasha for prayer. What's the example? What's the proof text? The Yigash Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu Hanavi drew near. This is when Eliyahu was battling with the priests of Baal and he's on Har Carmel and he wants, he devises a contest that they both sides, he on one side and the priests of Baal on the other side, have to offer a korban and have it burnt up but without any fire. And he davens to Hashem that Hashem should do the miracle to uh, show that Eliyahu's got it right, basically. And for all of these, Abraham drew near. To speak harshly, to appease, and to pray. Fascinating Rashi here. Lots to say. But what's the problem? The problem is what is meant by the Yagash. He drew near. Now, it could be that Rashi is simply saying, it's unclear what the word actually means. I can find you three types of, of gisha, and lo and behold, they all apply to Abraham. Um, you could possibly suggest that Rashi, if you'll pardon the anachronism, has in mind the Malbim on Sefer Yeshaya, uh, Perak Mem Aleph, Pasuk Kaf Aleph. And there we find, Karvu Rivchem Yoma Hashem Hagishu Atsumotechem Yoma Melech Yaakov. Now, that pasuk is, is sort of poetic, and as poetry often does in the Tanakh, um, it's two phrases which mirror each other. But um, we don't just read them as just uh, repeated with a slightly different uh, style, just for poetic license. We understand that the words mean something. And the Malbim there makes the point, and he says, Even though both Karav and Nigash are translated as drawing near, but they're both used in this Pasuk, and since they're both used, the Malbim, and the Malbim always does this, explains precisely the two words have slightly different meanings. Karav, Shavim, HaKaravim Karav indicates some two things that are equal, that draw near to each other. The hagasha hu bakatan lifne hagadol. But hagasha is, some, is not two parties who are equal. It's the smaller party, the junior party, drawing near to the bigger party. So that's a, uh, I think it, it sort of, it works. It works in the Pasuk in Yeshaya that the Malbim was talking about, but it works elsewhere as well. But you find Vayigash, um, in this case, Abraham. Abraham is clearly the junior party drawing near to the senior party, i.e. Hashem. And each of the examples that Rashi quotes 
has the same idea, the inferior drawing near to the superior. Now, the first one, he quotes, he says, milchama. What does he mean by milchama? Interestingly enough, in the first opening part, in his explanation, in his examples of the three types of gisha, the first one he says is milchama, war. But in his conclusion, when he says, Avraham drew near for all three, he says, ledaber kashot, to speak harshly. So it's not war as in the sense of taking up arms and going to fight, because Hashem, Avraham is not taking up arms against Hashem, but it means to speak harshly. So who is whom is Avraham at war with? So you could say he's at war with Hashem in the sense of he's speaking harshly to Hashem. He doesn't mince his words, as we will see. Not this week, but next week we'll see. He really doesn't mince his words. Or you could say, as someone to say, that he's doing battle with the Midat Hadin. Um, and that actually will come up in this passage, probably not this week. But part of what he's saying, and certainly the way the Targum Onkelos uh, explains it, which Rashi refers to, is there's a Midat Hadin, which is, as it were, driving Hashem to punish, and Abraham is arguing against the Midat Hadin. So there's a type of war, um, either Divre Kashot, as Rashi actually says, uh, that's what war means, it means to speak harshly, or we can say that Abraham is actually fighting against the Midat Hadin. So I saw a very interesting observation that the quote, the example of Yoav, in Shmuel Bet Perak Yud is significant. Because if you look in Shmuel Bet Perak Yud, you will see that Yoav has got his back against it, literally. There is war on all sides. And it looks like Yoav is going to lose. As it happens, he wins. But um, when it says, Yigash um, Yoav, it's Yoav almost on a uh, last desperate almost suicide mission. He knows he's up against a superior force, which fits nicely, uh, first of all, with what I said about the Malbim saying, but Yagash is always the slower, smaller party, the junior party approaching the senior party, because Yoav was the smaller army approaching the bigger army. And it also fits nicely with Avraham um, uh, arguing against Hashem knowing that the chances that Hashem's going to change his mind because one mere mortal argues otherwise is pretty slim. Nevertheless, Abraham goes into battle, as it were, just like Yoav does. The next example of Pius um, is Vayigash love Yehuda. But there is a problem. Because if you look at Rashi on the words Vayigash love Yehuda in the Sedra of Yigash, and I forget which peric it is, but it's the first words of the Parsha of Yigash, he says it means there that Yehuda wanted to speak harshly, the Daber Kashot, not the Payes, not to make appeasement. Uh, and therefore, um, a number of the Mephoshans say this is a Taud Sofer, this is a scribal error, not a Tikkun Soferim, which is a scribal improvement, but a scribal error. And it probably should refer to um, Yehoshua Yudalad Vav where it says, Vayikshu b'nei Yehuda el Yehoshua. Vayikshu b'nei Yehuda. The, the uh, children of Yehuda drew near to Yehoshua to ask him for help. Yehoshua was the boss, and the b'nei Yehuda had their own claim, and they drew near to make that claim and to negotiate about the claim. So that would fit very nicely in the example of Pius, and the Yagash love Yehuda doesn't fit nicely, and it's possible to imagine how um, the Pasuk, 
that Rashi was really quoting is Vayigshu B'nei Yehuda, and that somehow got transcribed as Vayigash Yehuda. And the third one is Hagashah L'Tefillah, is uh, the example of Eliyahu um, drawing near to Hashem, clearly, again, following the Malbim, minor going to major, that's the nature of Tefillah. Even though we are nothing compared to Hashem, nevertheless, we daven to Hashem. Now, we can also suggest these three are played out in Abraham's ensuing dialogue with Hashem. Because he's asking for lots of different things. And we'll try and sort out how Rashi thinks he's asking for different things. Is he asking for the innocent, sorry, so yes, for the innocent to be saved, for the Sadiqim in Saddam to be saved, because they should be saved, because they are not worthy of death. And that would be expressed by the Kashot, by harsh words, Abraham saying, you have no right to punish the Sadiqim, they should not be punished. The second approach that Abraham is taking is that, well, Sadiqim should save other people. So if you have a core of Sadiqim, then the Sadiqim should, the, the mercy, sorry, the justice, not mercy, the justice extended Sadiqim should stretch to other people, even non-Sadiqim. That's pious. And that's why I translated it before as negotiation. It's like, you know, you give a bit, argue a bit. Let, let's reach some sort of agreement. And then there's a third thing that Avram is asking for. Again, it's not quite clear where you find these in his words and different reforms have different explanations and we will stick to Rashi. But nevertheless, we can say that at some point Avram is saying, even the wicked should be saved. Now there's no justification for that. That's contrary to Din. It's certainly contrary to what Mirat Hadin is arguing. And it's pure chesed. Avram is asking, please just do me a favor. That is tefillah. So we can say that the three things that Avram draws near for is to save the Sadiqim, to extend the zchut of the Sadiqim, or even to save the Rashayim. That's tefillah. That, that is Tavar Kashot, that is Pius, that is tefillah. So Rashi finds references to what Avram is doing in the word Vayigash. He has to explain the word Vayigash, what exactly it means. It means lots of things. And all those things are appropriate here. Okay, the next Rashi on the words Ha'af Tifser, I think we will save for next week. So next week, Yemir Hashem, we will carry on from the middle of Pasuk Kaf Gimel. And I will say, as I do at this stage, um, are there any comments or questions? If not, I will thank you all and look forward to, please God, seeing you next week. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Rob.